I love the idea of local food and, and people buying from a local rancher. And at the same time, I have a little bit of a, I don't know, I get, I get a little frustrated sometimes when I listen to the arguments people use for supporting local food. They have the misperception that anybody that produces food in the grocery store, we don't take care of the land as good, we don't uh, maybe manage conservation-minded practices as well, um, we use chemicals, we, we might bathe, it sounds like we bathe some things in chemicals and hormones and all these terrible things and antibiotics. Um, that's my, that antibiotics always bother me. It's like, who in their right mind would give extra antibiotics? One, they're expensive. Two, they're a pain to give cattle. And three, we don't want it in our food either. So mm. why would we misuse that tool? You know, it's just, and then I hear arguments from people outside of the cattle groups that talk about it in such a negative light. And it's like, well, no, we, we use those as tools, but we don't overuse those. We took a break right before I testified to eat some lunch. And on the way back, here's, the, here's some landscaping on a side hill, like a retaining wall, so they didn't have erosion. So between their cement, guess what they planted? Big blue stem grass, my mm -hmm. ultimate favorite grass. It's like one nice. we really manage for out here. Like mm -hmm. I love to see a draw full of big blue stem, right? And here, here they had this whole retaining wall filled with it. And I'm like, see, we're not so far apart, people. You guys know what a good grass is, <laughs> know where to plant it. So yeah, we can, we can work to work this kind of people. <laughs> Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it share it, give it a good rating and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Danny Beer, all the way from northern South Dakota. Welcome, Danny. Hi, Peter. Um, you're about as far north in South Dakota as you can get without being in North Dakota. We are. We're, we're right on, on the border, we call it. Uh, it's North Dakota is about six, seven miles away. And so the mixed landscape that you're in, I, I would imagine some arable land, but a lot of grazing land. Correct. We have uh, farm and ranch land here both. So it's very much a mix. So it's very diverse. Okay. Um, so you come from a couple generations around cows. Um, and your husband grew up in the area, but kind of not necessarily on a farm. Is that correct? That's right. He, um, yeah, I grew up on a registered Angus ranch in North Dakota, about five miles into North Dakota. And he grew up, uh, his dad was a postmaster and um, his dad always uh, wanted to get some cows and had the opportunity as he got further into retirement. So I say he didn't come from a farm and ranch, but his parents were very much oriented that way. And 
um, actually do run their own ranch now in their retirement years. And um, yeah, he's always, um, he's always been a farmer himself. I mean, like he saved this little thing that he put together in first grade and he had, it was like an extra credit assignment and he had fields of corn and wheat and cattle and a pasture perfectly. Everything was perfect, you know? So yeah, he's always been that way too. And, and so, yeah, we've just always grown up in that culture. Now, I read somewhere third generation for you. Was that always on the same area or? Yeah, third generation would be right here. Uh, so this, this part of the country where we're at is actually an Indian reservation. And so it was not opened up to settlement until early 1900s. I think 1917 was the date of my grandfather's um, homestead year here. So oh. I guess fairly recently for the Great Plains, you would call this area. Mm. So uh, he came from east, the eastern part of uh, South Dakota by Sioux Falls. And um, yeah, so that's how it was homesteaded. Now, you said Angus, so people may have seen that brand on meat in the marketplace, but you're speaking about a specific breed of beef cattle, correct? Right, right. Uh, Angus is referred to as um, probably, as, as far as uh, most people would be concerned, it would be a, a black-hided cattle is what Angus look like and um, they're kind of known for that good tasty fat in the meat itself it's called marbling and and it really gives uh, good flavor to meat I think. I agree I agree um, and what, what's the difference you, you you've I, I see two words farm and ranch wife now what what's what's the difference between a farm and a ranch? Well, uh, for, for us, it actually meshes together. I mean, what, what we have um, is both. A lot of places would just consider themselves a ranch and some places would consider them a farm. Well, I don't, you could define it. You could define a farm as both or probably a ranch as both as well. But to me, um, farming is um, the act of, of planting a seed and harvesting a seed mechanically now, but um, ranching involves um, cattle or livestock, I would say. So maybe sheep, either one. That would be my personal definition, but I think you could interchange the two of them pretty easy and um, come up with your own. One older gentleman that we were having a little tour of our place one time and and we were looking at some of Mike's fields and, and um, it was a soil health tour and the folks were from uh, Western Montana. And I said something about, well, I'd, I'd really like to graze on these fields a little bit. And Mike gave me a look like, no, you're not. And we've always kind of clashed on what we should graze and shouldn't graze a little bit. It's been a little bit of a management disagreement but anyway um i said i'd like to graze these fields but he'll have a bunch of reasons why we shouldn't and so uh the elder guy says and hen that's that's the argument between a grazer and a plower mm. 
So okay. I've always thought of that. A grazer and a plower. But my husband's never actually been a plower. He's very much into the no-till and, um, yeah, no-till system of farming. So, Okay, so describe no-till farming. No-till farming is a method that you never um, break open the soil and release carbon, okay? So um, you plant a crop, you harvest a crop, and you never dig up the soil. So you don't release carbon. You keep that storage going. You keep all the um, dead plant material on top, except you harvest the grain, grain product from it. So, so is what, what kind of cattle operation do you run? <coughs> is it, is it commercial? Is it purebred? A- um, we have a little bit of both now. We're, we're mostly a commercial operation, and we would consider it be considered a cow-calf operation where we calve all the cows calve once a year, and um, we sell that calf crop in the fall of the year. And okay. we have added a few head of um, purebred Charlet cattle as well, so that would be a registered part of the operation. Okay. So you're calving in the spring and weaning and selling them in the fall. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yep. So how long, uh, how long between breeding and calving? Uh, breeding. Let's see. Breeding season here is about um, mid-May through August. And then they will calve for us between March and roughly March 1st to uh, June 1st. Um, so about nine months then for the... Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Correct. Uh, they say the average gestation period is 283 days, I believe. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nine months is a good. So from the time you breed a cow... Nine months later, there's hopefully a calf. And then about, what's that, five, six months later, you sell a steer? Yep. And so so as a, as yep. a cow-calf operator, you're selling the animals to someone who's going to either take them onto a stalker phase or into a feedlot. Is that correct? Or do you retain ownership through... We, we don't, um, we, we sell them outright, um, about mid October, our grass is kind of going downhill in nutritional value. And so, um, it's a good time for us to pull them off and sell them. We, we, if we had the facility, maybe we would background them ourselves and, and feed them. But, um, for our resources, it's just easier and makes more sense for us to, get them closer to somebody that has more feed for them. So you, you mentioned the seasonal feed quality changes and I'm going to guess that Northern South Dakota has something called winter and you don't get a lot of pasture growth in the winter. So not only do you have poor quality or lower quality feed, not necessarily poor, you can do some things to maybe build up a stockpile of, of forage, but 
it's it's not the high quality feed that would put gain on a young animal or um, support high levels of milk production, for example. So you've you've arranged the reproductive cycle, you manage the reproductive cycle of your cows to match the feed resource cycles of the environment in which you live. Exactly. That is exactly what we do. Uh, we do, ag we do um, put up quite a bit of hay forage and we do some silage. And so we use those feeds to supplement at this time of year and um, through about April and then, and then our um, native grasses and stuff start coming on some the tame grasses actually come first and then um, native grass in the uh, mid-June to September are the, the best nutritional value for our, our grasses here. So what part of your grass resource is native versus what you could call introduced or tamed? Tame, okay. So on our place, we have um the tame grass here is is kind of is called a crested wheat grass and it greens up early in the spring so i'd say about half of our pasture is that kind of a, a mixture and then probably yeah roughly about half is native we consider native and so it's a we have a good balance of both um we try to we try to manage for the native grass i mean that's our goal is to maintain the health of that and to to help it help me help, I guess, let it thrive in its natural environment because that's what's here. But that tame grass does like to uh, move in and, and um, take over pastures if, you're, if you don't manage for the natives. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's a little more aggressive sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a reason that some agronomists saw it and said, you know, that would be good. Um, and in some ways they are, and in other ways, you know, I give you Johnson grass, I give you kudzu, I, um, somebody thought even those... Kentucky blue, even Kentucky bluegrass, there's a, there's some kind of a bluegrass that comes into one of our pastures, like on the wet years, you know, mm -hmm. I think, oh, wet year, all right, we got great grass. And then I'm finding that bluegrass is moving in there and you got to really graze it at the right time to get rid of that. And, mm. So in the, is, I'm assuming that there's integration between the livestock operations and the cropping operations, grazing aftermath, uh, or uh, you're probably a little north to be grazing wheat pasture, aren't you? We are, yeah. Yeah, we, okay. uh, we do plant some winter wheat and it does well in his no-till stubble. Um, and then a lot of times we'll, not a lot of times we have grazed um, cover crop and so in some of the more marginal fields where he can't get a good yield for his crop uh, the lamb needs needs a little boost um, we'll go in and put a cover crop in and let that grow up and um, it's that's really fun because the cows get we call it the green feed lot because the cows come in just just bulky fat off of it and um so if if we were a little i i guess it just depends on your land and your setup uh, to take advantage of that 
So we do that where it's possible and where it makes sense. So that would be the planting of some annual plants following the crop or maybe slightly before harvest or at some point so that once your crop was harvested, you still have something green growing on those fields, right? That's right. Usually for us, it would follow um, winter wheat harvest. And that takes place about mid-July. So then we've gone in, or even if we end up with, it's kind of a, a cold, wet spring, and it's just getting awful late. And we know that that ground probably doesn't produce the best sunflower crop, or it needs more residue. It, it's, it's at a tender stage, and it could blow potentially. We'll, we'll go in and put a cover crop on that. And, it, and a lot of times the mixture involves um, some beets, some radishes. It's just a, a real mix of things. Uh, some, a little bit of corn, a little bit of millet. And um, so there's all kinds of things um, in there that look green and, and um, the cattle do great on it. So it's really fun. So thinking about your family operation, what, what are the biggest challenges that you currently face? do you think, or, or, or opportunities maybe? That's a, a, a more optimistic word about it. Challenges for us right now would probably be um, bringing in our second generation because as uh, Mike and I have uh, matured, uh, we're now trying to help our son get started in the operation and, um, and just going forward from there like, more of a challenge of meshing our goals or, or making sure everybody's um, getting what they want from it. And then there's always that financial aspect where we're so uncertain about prices and in general that everything's a little bit unknown for, for us a lot of the time that way. So in the cattle business um, on your end, when it's time to sell, is there any kind of contract ahead of time or is it whatever the person, you know, how is that business deal taken care of in terms of price of the animals? Okay, well, there's, there's a few different ways that we can market cattle. And uh, for us off, uh, on the cow-calf side of it, we'll have about two or three choices we can do. We can retain ownership and that means we'd send them to a feed yard and we'd own them and pay somebody to feed them. Or we can uh, sell them through a sale barn. And South Dakota is very lucky because we have a really good base of sale barns in the area and, and they're, they really do a good job of marketing cattle. The only downside we see to that is like you get whatever price you get your your price get or, or you know take or take you her. just show up with them and 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 you take what you get um the other kind would be a forward contract where we make a deal in june um with a buyer or a third party if we would intervene and, and make a contract for us and um, we would set up a time ahead that would to make a delivery on the cattle later on in the fall so those are, and then there's also become quite popular with the internet is the video auctions. There's, there's uh, a few of those that, that also help to market cattle. And 
I, I've heard that people may try to do a mixture of strategies to just kind of protect themselves, but leave themselves available to take advantage of positive market right. shifts. It's, right. It's kind of a and nerve. Then, hmm. Of course, of course, there's there's also um, the futures market to use as a risk management tool. Um, we have used that at times. I, I won't say we've ever came out like we felt like it worked for us. Uh, it it tends to be, I they call it risk management for us when when we've gone and learned about it. But I, experience tells me it, it feels like there's more risk in, at some times than than risk risk management. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's got to be kind of. Um stressful to be looking at a project that started, um, you know, a year and a half or more, uh, you know, between almost literally conception and delivery, that you, all those changes, it's hard to know, and you're dealing with weather. I, I didn't look it up, and I meant to, just to see sort of... Um, injury rates in industries and see if they've got something for farm and ranch. Um, I know that it's work that does entail a, a large amount of physical risk and people always have to be safety conscious. You're dealing with large animals, you're dealing with the weather, you're dealing with equipment, all of that. Um, and I, I remember a story and I've used it a lot, but the gentleman basically told me that um, it, the end of the story was cows come first, right? Yes, I know it's a blizzard, but, you know, I know that, um, and in this case, the guy was in the emergency room for a heart attack and he would, he, he, it was insisting he had to leave because he had made no arrangements to feed the cows that night. He was going to take care of that. He was going to get somebody to do it. He'd come back the next day, but cows come first. So, um, I, I don't think many people appreciate that kind of commitment that it takes. You know, Peter, I think we are number two on the accident rate um, thing. I think the oil industry is first, and mm. I think farm and ranch is second. But I could be wrong. I, I just think that might be it. But, yeah, I, I don't... I don't know a lot different. I, I've grown up in it. I, I don't know. We have, we have been pretty fortunate accident wise, but. Um, well, and there's a reason. It could happen. I mean, yeah, it could. But if you're, if you've developed good habits, then um, hopefully those things are avoided. Um but no, the wherever it ranks on the list, it's not a list you want to be on. And um, no. I've seen I've seen some horrific things. Um, so, okay, you you mentioned um, building a herd, um, and you're not going to do that with. It, it, that's a process that. So when I hear stories of of ranchers who lose large numbers of animals in um, um, a wildfire, for example, that can represent generations of work to build those animals. So how do you do that? Um, what, um, the, when, you, when you select herd bulls, 
what kind of information do you have available to you today? Are you are you using artificial insemination? Are you all uh, natural cover? What 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 does that look like for your operation? Okay, so to start with, to yes, to answer your question about do we use artificial insemination? Yes, and we also use both naturally. So yes, on both, and what does it entail to build a herd? Okay, so you can raise your own females or you can buy your females. I would say that uh, most places maybe do a combination of both. At times they'll retain females so you'd keep your females or heifer calves in the fall. You would breed them when they're one-year-old. And so then you would have a, their first calf out of them when they're two years old. And then that female, for us, that's what we do, is um, breed them as when they're one, calve them when they're two years old. We call them a first calf heifer. And then um, she would stay in the herd as long as she breeds back every year and has a calf for us. She'll stay in our herd till she's 11, 12 years old, potentially. And um, if she get, they may get called out earlier um, if they lack milk, if, if they come up open, we call it open if they don't breed back. And um, open isn't a, isn't a word any rancher ever wants to hear because it means their cow didn't breed and it's, it's pretty costly because an open female isn't worth a lot compared to breeding and having a calf every year in your herd. So does that kind of explain it or do you want me to expound no, I, anything there? I think that's good. If you had a hundred cows um, exposed to either AI or a bull, and you ended up with ninety calves on the ground, so ninety percent, would that be good or bad? Or uh, for us, we would that would be bad for us. Um, we we put a quite a bit of labor into ours, and um, we try we try for ninety three ninety four percent. Okay. per cow exposed to, I think the average on one of the management tools that I, you, we use and compare ourselves to is a, a CHAPS program out of North Dakota State University. And I want to say their average is 92% for that. Okay. So um, per cow exposed, meaning she was, uh, the bulls were turned out one summer and then what gets weaned the following year. Oh, so that's wean. That's not even live calf. I mean, that's all the we way. We only get paid for the weaned ones. We don't get paid for what ends up in the dead pile. So yeah. you always, yeah, that's that's yeah. the worst when you have them there because yeah. we don't get paid for those. <laughs> um, somebody said mama cow pays you only on two days. One when the mm -hmm. calf is sold or two when she is. Um, yep, that's right. So, okay. Um, and, and that, that weaned sold calf crop, that, that number would vary depending on what part of the country you're in because of the difference oh, in operations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So one of, one of the things that kind of makes me twitch a little bit is when people ask me questions about, you know, why isn't the beef industry more involved in, and it's usually we're having conversations about keto or low carb or some other dietary intervention. And I try 
to say, well, what part of the beef supply chain are you talking about? Because there's not just one single beef industry. So you're a cow-calf operator. Mm -hmm. You sell your animals to others who then sell them to others who then process them and then they go so um and and it's it's this pyramid because it's broadest at the base where the individual producers are and i think i saw like three quarters of a million farms and ranches have cattle on them in their inventory for u.s um, census of ag and then it chokes down to like by a factor of 10 for feedlots or something. I mean, it's like 70,000. Right. And then, and then you've got five major packers or something like that. Is, am I right about that? Maybe it's three. I, yep. Um, so there's this tremendous concentration as you leave the farm and ranch and, and um, it's, there, there's some other things there. If that's anything you want to talk about that I'd be interested in your perspective on the beef industry. Right. Well, Peter, I, I appreciate you trying to blend the herds like you talk about, because I agree with you. There's a tremendous amount of disconnect between the people producing the actual food or in this, in this case, cattle and the people that eat our food. Like I am so far out of the diet discussion. When I first met you, I remember, I remember saying something about those kettle people or the, Keto, I've been following that a little bit online, and you just about lost lost your marbles laughing at me because I'd said keto instead of keto. You thought, boy, they'd get a real kick out of that, and I'm like, I didn't mean to offend them. And that's, you know, that's how closely I followed the diet stuff. I just kind of, I didn't know anything about it. But anyway, now I really pay attention, and and you were instrumental in me starting to listen to that whole conversation about diet and health. But uh, I would say, yeah, uh, so I kind of think, honestly, we have a little bit of a dysfunctional market with, with cattle. When, when I compare it to how any other product is sold. So like I said, for a sale barn and mostly we are price takers. And it, we are and feedlots are, we have, especially the feed, at the feedlot end of it. They end up with a finished steer that has a minimal shelf life because he's fat and he needs to be butchered or the quality of meat goes down. So he's perishable, right? Kind of like a gallon of milk. He's only, a gallon of milk's only going to last in the fridge for so long, right? So, so is that steer in, in good condition. So the, the feed yard is limited in their time frame of when they can sell that. But the packer comes in and, well, he might not need any that week because he's, he's got them all with his own supply. And so, so the guy's got to sit on the cattle another week, whatever. So I, there's just a lot of nuances about that, that it, the more divided you are, the less power market power you have. So you're right. The pyramids like this and the people at the bottom have very limited market power and the people in between um, the hourglass, I guess I call it, because all the consumers are up here and the bottlenecks at the packing industry and retail and then we're down here as producers so um i like the i love i love the idea of local food and and people buying from a local rancher and at the same time i have a little 
bit of a, I don't know, I get, I get a little frustrated sometimes when I listen to the arguments people use for supporting local food. They have the misperception that anybody that produces food in the grocery store, we don't take care of the land as good, we don't uh, maybe manage conservation-minded practices as well, um, we use chemicals, we, we might bathe, it sounds like we bathe some things in chemicals and hormones and all these terrible things and antibiotics. Um, that's my, that antibiotics always bother me. It's like, who in their right mind would give extra antibiotics? One, they're expensive. Two, they're a pain to give cattle. And three, we don't want it in our food either. So mm. why would we misuse that tool? You know, it's just, and then I hear arguments from people outside of the cattle groups that talk about it in such a negative light. And it's like, well, no, we, we use those as tools, but we don't overuse those. Well, I, I try to point out that people in animal husbandry have understood for a while that you can't make up for bad nutrition or bad husbandry practices with antibiotics. Um, and yet human nutrition doesn't seem to have onboarded that message yet that there are. Right. <laughs> yes, that um, is true. That consulting. If we fed know, our cattle as poorly as some people do. Uh, yeah, we wouldn't be selling. <laughs> we wouldn't be selling a lot. No, it, it, as you said, it's expensive and you can't just walk up to them in the pasture and hold out the tablets in your hand and have them take them. That's not how that works. Um, mm -hmm. So the, uh, the, um, do you have, are, are you challenged with predators in your part of the country? Is that a, a risk for your animals or? No? Not really. We, we can check our cattle. Um, daily and now we have coyotes and and they uh they're kind of a natural part of the environment for the most part they'll some uh, sometimes at calving time we'll, we'll see them out in the middle of the cows and they're sometimes on alert about it and sometimes not um mostly they're scavenger for us so so it's not like those operations that utilize public lands and they're you know turning animals out into relatively remote grazing areas and they don't have people checking on them frequently and it can be right, a problem. Right, right, um, no. Um, so, yeah, that idea of now, one of, one of my points, I, I discovered that I, I have a lot of pet peeves. I have a menagerie of pet peeves. Um, one, of, <laughs> one of the herd of pet peeves is, we, there have been people involved in conservation and grazing management in livestock handling in all of these topics for decades. And every so often we come up with a new name to hang on some of those practices. And then we mark it based on that new name rather than acknowledging the work that's going on to achieve those objective measures of conservation. As you mentioned, managing grasslands to favor the native grasses so that they are healthy and predominate over some other species or 
um, to, to not overgraze so that you don't have soil erosion. I mean, these are not new concepts, uh, although many people may have become aware of them. So for a number of years, I've tried to say, what, what if everything that the non-agricultural audience says that they want is already available to them in the supermarket? And how could we get that message out and, and better let them know that? Well, that's uh, a good question. I mean, probably a podcast like this where you have a, have, you know, a, a real farmer rancher to explain what we're doing. I don't know if that's helpful, but I would think it is. It's, I've always compared it to um, asking somebody that's lived in, on a ranch their entire life or whatever, taking them into city and asking them to solve a problem or a challenge that they're facing with the garbage situation or something. I have no idea, but I, but I do, I won't say I know everything. I'm constantly learning everything, although we've spent a lifetime and we've learned from elders of how to take care of this land. And we try to keep improving what we're upon what we're doing. And what I find interesting as we've aged here on our ranch is the amount of erosion taking place that we saw when we came home from college as to what erosion is taking place now. When we came home and we'd have a gully washer of rain, because we'll get three, three inches of rain, and that's like a quarter of our entire rainfall for the whole year, but it comes in an hour or two. And, and the, the erosion we would see take place and, and the gully washing. We, they, it was called a gully washer because it makes a, a channel of water and they call it a gully. And what we would see 30 years ago compared to now is we see the most erosion on the roads we drive on. It is not taking place in his fields that he farms and it's not taking place in our pastures anymore. And that fact I'm really, really proud of because that tells me it's headed the right direction. We're building soil. We're, we're getting it deeper. We're not taking away from it. You know, the, the biggest erosion we used to see was those gully washers and wind erosion. When the wind would blow, it would be like miniature dirty 30s, you know, right? Everybody's seen pictures from the Great Depression where the land was blowing away. I challenge you to find a place in the United States where that's happening at, where they're using good conservation practices because... Mm-hmm. You just don't see that here anymore. You know, we can be dry and we get a 60 mile an hour wind and it's not blowing away. And that to me is, is good to see. So. Mm. Yeah. I, I do remember learning about the term snert uh, when I visited North Dakota yes. the last time we saw each other. And that so, was happening. Uh, well, I saw, I was trying to figure it out because what would it be? I flew into Fargo and drove to Bismarck, and this was what January, February, okay. and yes. and as I drove along that highway, and what would that highway be? Eighty is that or um, probably I ninety? I ninety Interstate ninety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I went along, I noticed. Well, first of all, the snow was well off the road and back into the ditches, which are well off the side of the highway. But I, I saw this 
dark discoloration on it. And at first I thought, you know, was, is that cinders or something that they put on the road? But then I noticed it wasn't consistent. It was a pattern. And then I noticed that the pattern seemed to be when I was next to a crop field, it would be darker. And when I was next to areas that hadn't been cropped, it wasn't. And then later in one of the presentations, somebody mentioned the word snurt as snow and dirt mixed together. Uh -huh. So that wind right. erosion. So you are seeing, you are seeing land management differences there. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, along with coming back, I had then learned to look for something else because they had mentioned how, um, when farmers in that part of the country cleared the rocks out of their field, the fields were too big to, and there weren't as many rocks to build fences around, you know, stone fences like New England. So they just piled them into piles and then farmed around the piles. And now today you have this pillar of soil with stones on top and the soil that they're farming is like 18 inches lower than the soil underneath right. the rocks. And so I hadn't seen that on the way going west, but I did see that on the way going east because somebody had taught me what to look for. Um, so the, there have been these changes and when people want to talk about impacts of livestock versus cropping, yes, let's, and yes, let's do everything we can, but understand that there's some impacts of crop farming that you're not accounting for when you want to say, let's not have any animal agriculture, which I don't think is practical. I, uh, we, we can't have farming systems without livestock. So, but that's getting me very close to another of my menagerie. So let's go on. Uh, <laughs> um, you mentioned diet. Uh, you've mentioned that you've been on the keto diet and um, you mentioned that um, you're largely animal source food in your diet. And um, I'm just wondering what the neighbors think uh, at the potlucks and at the community suppers. Um, <laughs> does that come up at uh, all? Not a, not a lot. No, uh, yeah. we're such a meat meat-based area nobody it, what I put on my plate doesn't really stand out to anybody if if I'm asked I mean I I started out eating this way after I was poking my finger during uh, uh, my last pregnancy because of gestational diabetes problems so I just it's diabetes prevention for me so that's the way I look at it and kind of the way I've come to explain it mm -hmm. so it's, but yeah, it's here, everybody, meat is your main dish. Mm -hmm. We've never gone to the, to the vegetarian movement or anything. Oh, really? Here, so. Really? Impossible burgers no, aren't a big no. seller there in, no. in Keldron? <laughs> no. When I get to speak to audiences in, of agricultural organizations, um, well, a recent interview with a physician and they were talking about the sorts of food that served at medical conferences to do with diabetes education, completely inappropriate. And then I go to, I uh, told them about going to um, forage related 
uh, conferences and you know the complimentary breakfast the animal source foods or maybe the mini moose and the cheese cream cheese in the danish center you know that that's it right um the health of the rural of rural america is every bit as challenged <laughs> as the health in suburban urban um I, I think we see the same challenges but maybe more so in terms of access like how far is it to the closest hospital or urgent care center from where you live? I mean, how many miles is that? Oh, for us, it's uh, only, what, 50, 50 miles? Oh, only 50. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Um, no, I, I know people much further. Uh, it's just a, a fact out here. It's a little ways to everything. So mm -hmm. we're used to that kind of travel, but that 50 miles only takes, can take me less than 50 minutes if I drive. <laughs> right. Traffic might that be, fast. yeah, might be right. a combine traffic on the road. Is light. My phone usually tells me traffic is light. <laughs> um, yeah, I can imagine. So, um, you'd got it. You'd have to be here to appreciate how light the traffic is, I think. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure. Um, so we, we talked about um, people who don't come from uh, or don't have an agricultural background or haven't been experienced to it um, and uh, issues to do with uh, the efforts of co in conservation and those sorts of things that are going on. Where would, are there places where somebody could say, I want to find out what's going on in my state or I want to find out what they're doing in South Dakota are there organizations that you would recommend that people look into? Sure. I think, I think the Natural Resource Conservation Services nationwide do a pretty good job of promoting conservation. And um, in most of them, I, I think, at least around here, we have a, a local um, conservation district. So if, if you have um, those in, like, for instance, if you're going to plant a tree in your yard and you want to make sure it's a native tree and not an invasive species, they would be a good resource for that. And um, you're going to, yeah, I would say that would be a good one for our, for our area, yeah. for sure. And if anyone's has land that they're looking for management help with, they would certainly be a source that they should uh, look into. Um, also, I've noticed there's a great number of videos on YouTube from South Dakota about conservation efforts and, and Leopold Conservation Award winners yes. every year. There's someone, and, and this is not just South Dakota, but maybe because I've been looking at so many, YouTube just keeps giving them to me. Um, but there's other organizations that, that people can look learn more about maybe even get involved with um, grassland conservation organizations in addition um, people who are looking at native plants on the, on the prairie and those sorts of things so um, all of that um, right sources I would I guess I would add for for our area and um, maybe what we're trying to conserve here the um, South Dakota, Grasslands Coalition, I believe it's called. They put out a lot of videos and very, very good um, grassland educational videos. And um, 
the world is it world wildlife federation Better. i think mm -hmm. they do I, I believe it's them and then there's another group they both come out and do um bird counts on our ranch mm. and um i i went online and i looked at their stuff and i it was interesting because part of their goal said that they wanted to help maintain and and help ranches thrive private ranches because a lot of the land that's being managed properly for cattle also is properly managed for birds native birds and migratory birds that they're trying to conserve and um in their goal then part of it was purchasing land and i thought a little bit of me was conflicted like okay so you're out competing with private ranchers for land and yet you want to help maintain what we're doing and who we are so i don't know if i recommend them or not but i i do know that they have they're trying to have a role in a part of the conversation and we'd probably also recommend that people look into places like maybe South Dakota State University or some of the other land-grant universities for information. Right, right, definitely. Um, is there something that we haven't covered that you'd like to cover? Something you'd like to ask me? Um, I guess I would be interested to know what you consider sustainable food. Okay, my, my definition of sustainability means that we have to look at not just ecological or environmental aspects, but we also have to look at the economic as well as societal aspects and how all of those have to be considered because we can't just maximize our approach on one without considering the impacts in others. So for me, the definition has to be the ability to produce food um, that allows for profit for the producer so that that operation is sustained, as well as um, protecting, if possible, even enhancing the resource so that that can be sustained, as well as then providing food that's essential for human development and flourishing at a price that the customer can buy or pay. So all of those aspects have to be considered. Um, and I am currently doing some poking around to say, okay, we can worry about production and processing and retailing, but at the end of the day, people are gonna eat it. And if it makes people sick to eat that, then I don't care about all those other things. There's an impact there that we better be paying attention to. And right now I'm coming up with some numbers that just frankly make me go, what are we even talking about here? Uh, the, 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 the cost of diabetes, for example, is so great in terms of environmental um, impact that if we're not, you know, the, I'm always interested in having a conversation with people who are sincere and who are of goodwill and they really want to figure it out. I'm growing weary of the people who are talking about something with an agenda behind it and, and the agenda is what's driving them, not what we're talking about, because it doesn't, it's, it's whack-a-mole at that point. You can say, 
well, what about the greenhouse gas emissions from cattle? And I can say, yeah, but most of what's coming out, which is a very little bit in the big scheme of things, came out of the air to begin with. So we're cycling CO2. Uh, oh, well, what right. about, you know, right. you know, this, that, and the other thing. And it, 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 so uh, sustainability for me has to be about um, the health of the producer community, the health of the consumer community. It has to be about the economic viability of farms. It has to be about the um, maintenance, the, the proper stewardship of the land resources. Um, you know, I, I, I guess that's where I start the, the definition of what sustainable means. Yeah. I, th I agree with that. That's, that's a good mix. Good. I guess one of the, one of the scariest things that I've probably done um, in recent years was I went out and um, testified at a hearing that FDA and USDA had. Hmm. And the hearing was on um, cell cultured meat hmm. and how they were going to regulate it. And so I, I was one of about five or six uh, producers that went to this hearing, and there was probably 30 or more people testifying at it. And so we were, for one, I mean, this is one of the few times I've stepped out of the, the agriculture comfort zone and, and went and um, spoke up for our industry as a whole, really. But I think what scared me most about what I heard from their testimonies was their assumptions that cattle were, you know, ruining the climate or we need it. We needed to do this because of climate change, that cattle were part of the problem, uh, creating global warming, or I can't remember how they said climate change, I think is what they called it. And um, that, you know, we couldn't sustainably produce meat. And so they're five, that's how they were justifying cell culture meat products. And it blew me away that these, these, uh, it, and they were all younger generation people, mm -hmm. uh, people, my kids' age, you know, and I'm, I just, I felt really bad that they'd been so misinformed about the role that cattle play in the ecosystem, because I, I, I can't feel anything less for them that, that, that their, their work was all based on that mm, and mm. how unfortunate for them. Someday, someday I feel like they're going to wake up and, and go, I, I was producing something, but why? The cow mm. or Eddie Magnuson, she was doing, the, the cattle do it. Their, their rumens do what they're trying to recreate. And, and maybe even, um, my understanding, basically, okay, you can culture this tissue, whether you should or not is a different question, but that's one tissue. And of course, I understand why the, the animal source food industry talks about protein because they, they don't want to talk about fat because fat's bad. But I think more and more people are understanding fat is not bad when it comes from animal source food. Um, let's talk about all the nutrition that we get from animal source food. And the evidence clearly is that um, the, the, well, the preponderance of high quality evidence suggests 
that the greatest harm coming to humanity is coming from not consuming enough animal source food, not from consuming too much. And there really isn't any high quality scientific evidence saying too much is a problem. Now, I understand people right. have been taught what they've been taught, but if we can have respectful conversations, maybe we can get to the point where we could find out why do you believe that? Where, where does that come from? Where is that information from? Why? And, and when we do that, as we have within this metabolic health community, we come to find that there really isn't a solid foundation for that belief. And then when you go overseas and you see the effect of not enough, then the question has to be, how are we going to produce more and do it more efficiently so that we're minimizing, not eliminating, minimizing the environmental impact, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I think that we have to find ways to communicate from all the various different specialties that exist that know about this and communicate it to a public that's only hearing one side. And part of that side is driven by people that want to create a new business, right? I mean, that's, if, they, that's if, right. They, if they can create this, then they control it. They then, you know, so, and again, now you're talking about one or two or three as opposed to three quarters of a million, right? <laughs> which, which would you trust right. more? <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, thank you for going to Washington. That's not something I've done yet and I'm not sure I ever will, but um, I, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate people that do that. Thank you. Uh, and I'm willing to- You know what them. was funny? I, when we, when, and that's what, that was, two or three years ago that I did that. And we were, we took a break right before I testified to eat some lunch. And on the way back, here's the, here's some landscaping on a side hill, like a retaining wall. So they didn't have erosion. So between their cement, guess what they planted? Big blue stem grass, my mm -hmm. ultimate favorite grass. It's like one nice. we really managed for out here. Like I love to see a draw full of like glue stem, right? And here, here they had this whole retaining wall filled with it. And I'm like, see, we're not so far apart, people. You guys know what a good grass is, <laughs> know where to plant it. So yeah, we can, we can work to work this kind of people. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a great place for us to wrap this up. Danny, thank you so much for the time. And thank you for letting us into a little bit of your world. You bet. You bet, Peter. Anytime. That was fun. Thank you.